I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. In this episode, Simone and I interview the great Dutch trend forecaster Lee Edelcourt at her gallery in Paris. Now, Lee does lots of different work with textiles and education. She's collaborated with the Ethical Fashion Initiative, but it's the trend work that everyone knows about. Her company, Trend Union, puts out these riveting forecasts and reports predicting what's next. Now, you've no doubt heard of her famous anti-fashion manifesto. That was published in 2014, but if you read it today, it feels like it was written today. And you've probably been reading about Lee in the news recently and her ideas on how coronavirus has led us to a quarantine of consumption from which we might, if we're smart, choose to press the reset button. Now, this interview was recorded before all that, but it is, unsurprisingly, prescient. Hello, Lee. Welcome to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. Lee, you have a few different jobs. I mean, you are a curator, you're an educator, you were the founder and the dean of the hybrid design course at Parsons. But I think that the phrase that people most associate with you is trend forecaster. That's my initial work. This is what I was born for, I guess. And it actually is necessary for me because it governs all other work. So when I do an exhibition or when I design a school, or when when I have a vision of a new strategy for a city, or whatever comes up, I always use my knowledge of the future. So, in fact, I always need my work. I've heard you use the phrase archaeologist of the future. Yeah, it's a good way to say that the way it works. Um, What we do is that we have fragments of information, which I assemble sort of store without knowing it, actually. And it's, by and large, when you have more and more of these fragments, that suddenly you understand what's going on. It's so interesting. I was at Pure London, and someone gave a trend report or a trend forecast on colour. And I think that maybe listeners might think that's where it stops or where it begins. But of course, it's a lot more than that, right? Well, colour is only one aspect. And uh, it's a very important aspect still in our society, maybe getting more important even. But what is really forecasting the future is more about what goes on in the human psyche, what is changing in our minds, what is hindering us. Today, almost everything is hindering us, so we live in such a horrible period that we don't even know how to survive. So we will change possibly everything we do now. I think it's going to be a radical moment of change. And then comes also textile, color, you know, and anything else. I read in an interview with The Guardian that you described your predictions as not your invention. You said, I'm just picking it up and broadcasting it. I'm interested to know, how did you begin? How did you begin that? I think someone came to your art school when you were in Holland or or maybe not in Arnhem. In Arnhem. And that sparked your interest. Is that right? Yeah, that's the true story. Uh, We got a lecture about the French styling offices, Mafia, Promostil and so on. And I recognized myself in this uh, type of job 
And the woman who did the lecture also recognized me through the questions I made as being a potential forecaster. But what did it even mean? Like, what is styling? What was that? Yeah. This really came about after the Second World War. People wanted to streamline the production of fashion. And therefore, they wanted to sort of come to major conclusions on where developments would go. Like... Now fabric is no longer rationed, or yeah. Well, then it was about hemlines and shape, you know, and yeah. and color and so. And in the eighties, it started to be intriguing also for all other industries. So we got car industries, sponge industry, a beverage alcohol industry, spaghetti industry, <laughs> uh, and the thing intimate napkin industry. You know, sky is the limit. Everybody wanted to be informed about what is the expectation of the consumer. But also there's an awful lot of money in it. I mean, you ask what they want to do is try and predict what's going to sell. Well, what we certainly do is that we ask them to do less. <laughs> this is, I, I already asked, beg my clients to do less for the last 20 years and to do better and to scale down their productions because there is just too much and this is disabling everybody the problems we encounter now is because there is too much so once there is too much the consumer gets puzzled and panicked and sometimes real panic attacks happen in you know big malls and so or just the overwhelm overwhelming it's like the yogurt boulevard you know Mm. that you don't really know from 500 references what to do And this is now we are paying the price for that excess. Your most recent trend union presentation was titled Green Wave. I liked it. There was a quote in it that said, the need for green is so powerful that it will turn around fashion and design without any doubt. And it's sprouting from different political, humanistic and survivalist sources that are impossible to ignore. That's like what you were mentioning there, that we're exceeding planetary boundaries. There's too much stuff. We're freaking out. Yeah, really, I think um, this is also why I wrote the Anti-Fashion Manifesto because I could see how consumers were so confused that they would go out of a store and say, there's nothing here. Three ladies coming out of Barney's. Yeah. (gasps) There's nothing here. They just had seen 15,000 references and more. Because many people keep saying that now. So people don't even discern differences or newness. So my new keyword for the future, which is in one of the pages of my new book on the future of luxury, is innovation. Why innovation? I actually no, was innovation. Ex- innovation. U N N O innovation. Of course, it's a provocative word. I was about to jump, and you go, "Why is it innovation?" I thought you were going to say something. And for us who work in the UN, it also something related to it. It could also be the United Nations innovation. It's it's fun. Actually, that would be fun. Okay, unpack that word for us. Well, we do too many things. Companies keep making drops while nobody shops. Companies give all the goodie bags, you know, it's all the waste, all the shit. That all has to stop. All these special events, all this Instagram merchandise, uh, that all has to stop because it's ingérable. We cannot you know, keep track of it all. And it's very bad for the planet. 
So that's a start, right, if you take that away. And I think innovation now has become such a buzzword, such a keyword. It's actually killing us because some of the innovations, you know, are not really good for your brain or your heart or your blood pressure or whatever. <laughs> and maybe even not even good for your memory. So I think suddenly innovation, it's not my word, unfortunately. I found it somewhere. But it's a brilliant word. It's a brilliant, brilliant word. Because if you say innovation, it becomes suddenly so new that you say stop innovating. Yes. Stop and wait and listen yes. and reflect. Get rid of all the waste. You know, clean up your brand. Yes. Clean up your storage. Take away 15%, 20% of your pieces. Get rid of all the retailers which don't work. Mm. No, concentrate on what really works. Consider why you want to have this growth. Is this growth really going somewhere? Or is it killing you softly? Isn't it better to stay a bit smaller and maybe owner of your brand? These are not propositions that most people in the fashion industry or the business of fashion are welcoming or want to hear, well, right? they I are mean, all in the old principle of um, the old economy. This economy is not going to continue. It's already going to waste. And coming so, to that. Yeah. So yeah. we will, whether they want it or not, they can call it uh, communism or socialism or whatever they want to call it. It's nothing to do with that. It's that just the system doesn't work anymore. This conversation reminds me of something that Simone actually wrote recently in Twig, which is a magazine and a platform for sustainability. But you were inspired by the what you called pointless carousel of Fashion Week, which we're on the brink of, Fashion Month, right now. Simone, do you want to talk about that? You argued that fashion has adopted the language of sustainability and green stuff, but it's often a form of camouflage aimed at hiding the reality, brutal. And you said that at Fashion Weeks, it's like a smokescreen. People sit down, talk about post-growth or sustainability, but they don't mean it. Meanwhile, more and more trends, everyone leaping around to different fashion capitals, more and more clothes. Lee, you talked about the overwhelm. Do you want to... Yeah, absolutely. And I think I share the same opinion on, of Lee on that. I was reassured when I first met you, Lee, and we had the discussion around that because you had similar opinions. And it was, until a few years ago, it was not common to think like that, to think about sustainability, the sustainability of the whole industry, of this business model, as you say. These fashion weeks are the expression of a business model that is not sustainable anymore. You have a mountain of people traveling everywhere from one place to the other, you have producers uh, highly stressed to produce show-ready pieces of garments at the very last second and changing them at the very, very, very last second. You have manufacturers of materials stressed because they have to intervene, they have to change, they have to reproduce, they have to remake. You have a lot of influencers who bombard consumers, as you said before, with a lot of images on Instagram, and you don't really understand what goes on 
And the thing that goes on is an old business model that tries to replicate itself without knowing where to go in terms of sustainability. Yes, the industry has adopted the language of sustainability. Have a good brand, has a chief sustainability officer, they have an office for that and this and that. But they do not walk the walk. They talk the talk. That's what they do. Look at the main brands. Do we really know the complete story behind their products? Do we really know where they come from, how they are made? What is the social cost of these productions on the workers, on the supply chain? Do we really know what is the impact, social and environmental, of this carousel, of this big carnival of the fashion weeks? Recently, Vogue Italia didn't publish any photo on the cover page because they wanted to avoid photographs traveling and all the carbon footprint and all the rest. Did you see that Vogue Italia cover? Did yes. you think it was a sign of the times, Lee? It is. And it's so interesting because in the 80s, we had magazines only made with illustrations. Well, in the 40s and 30s, that was the yeah, only but it was a revival. Mm. Vogue Italia was all, actually. I mean, if you think about when Anna Piaggi was doing those pages with Antonio, it was all illustration, wasn't it? But not for eco reasons. I doubt, though, that the audience is able to read illustrations. You know, everybody is so used to the power of the photo that it's not possibly uh, so easy to transform that awareness. I think sometimes that uh, words actually are better than photos. Describing things uh, seem to be the way to go now. Uh, you see that there's longer interviews, there's longer articles, there's more opera articles. So because of the um, blogger sphere, I think that journalism is in a very beautiful revival. So the word will definitely uh, come to the fore. I'm glad to hear you say that because in your anti-fashion manifesto you argued that journalism or journalists were suffering from a crisis of a lack of education, just they as students are. were. Couldn't even describe a jacquard or tell the difference between a jacquard and it a print. It still continues. It gets now so bad that even uh, Prince de Gaulle, they call it a print. You know, I'm citing Vogue, England. Oops. Oops. And, you know, it... It sort of freaks me out every time it happens. There is something in the Fashion Week which is also a thing we need to cherish, which is the being together and the sharing and the celebration and the party and the dinner and so on. So I guess we need to concentrate on one city at once. So maybe it should be a traveling thing where each city is hosting everybody else. So... Journalists just have to go into one destination, almost like a design fair or, you know. We can find new forms where we still keep some of this celebration, which is important. But it's true that now we see with the virus that Basel, Hong Kong, you know, cancelled Sweden. Fashion Week cancelled um, we'll never do it again. But that was interesting because when Swedish Fashion Week was cancelled, which was last season, the press release mentioned that the climate crisis was a context, but it was never suggested by the organisers that, that was the driving force. I think it was clear that economically it wasn't viable when they have so many brands 
already showing in other Nordic fashion weeks. Mm. But the press leapt on that as Sweden cancels fashion week for climate reasons. And I think there's an appetite for it. People want to see a provocation and a change. You know what? It's about focusing on stakeholders. This industry focuses only, as all the big businesses today, on the shareholders. It's an industry that has, in terms of business model, huge margins. You do not find an industry like this unless you go to high technology, Apple, and all these things, the new, the new economy. These high margins are for the shareholders, but every industry today has to think about the stakeholders, which is the wider community, which is the public, which is the consumers, which is all those who work in the supply chains, which is what you do for the society in which you operate and out of which you get your, your income, your revenue. These attentions to stakeholders who drive us towards what Lee was saying before, having only one appointment in fashion, in fashion season, all together there celebrating, because this is what stakeholders need, because this is what the community around us is asking to do. And what you said, Claire, is absolutely true. When you cancel something because of climate change and because of, of the emergence in which we are, you have to say that. You have to declare it because discussing the issues of today is part of the sharing world in which we are going to live. In this way, with this kind of business model, we only share problems. We share the problems of climate change. We share the problems of conflict in other parts of the world, of poverty. And this and that. But we have to share everything. We have to share also the wealth generated by this industry. And the way to do it is to change the business model. That's, of course, one of the biggest issues. How are we going to share the wealth? Because if we won't do it, and we might not do it, I guess, then I foresee enormous societal problems. Indeed. And um, possibly civil war. Indeed. If we don't uh, take care. And it's not far away. It's really in the United States. You feel it on your doorstep. And you feel that uh, the other person can be your adversary, can kill you in an instant, just because of who you are, how you dress, your color, or whatever. So that is in the air. So if the fear of the other becomes so big, then I think you, so you hurt society more than anything else. And absolutely, what we say at the ethical fashion is always fashion could be a powerful way to regenerate the social capital of societies because fashion can bring people together can bring people together to work to share the same objectives to share the same wealth it doesn't happen today but it has this potential if we do not do it we won't be able i completely agree with you to address the big problems of the world of today inequality conflict division we have to regenerate the social capital of these societies in which we live not only the environmental one and i want to tell you another thing in afghanistan where there is a bloody war a terrible war that has caused more death last year than the wars in syria and in yemen together in afghanistan in some regions we have more people displaced by climate change than by war mm. the world is changing we cannot wait anymore lee you Before we pressed record, we were having a conversation about flight shame and about the changing dynamics of how we might all get together, do business and move around the world. We've talked about 
the pressures of, you just mentioned, increasing disconnection, violence, war, all of these factors shape the fashion context. But could you give us an insight in what you think the big shaping factors are on the future of fashion? Oh, it's we need more time than that. We need to slow down, to slow down the whole process so we have a bit more time to really think and to really create interesting elements instead of repeating the same old. Uh, there is much too much same old, so people don't really feel that they need to consume because you already have everything, you know, already multiple times. Young people say that there's enough garments in the world to never ever make a new one anymore. So the vintage business is obviously a very big promise, not necessarily sustainable, but better. I believe that we still need to continue uh, making and uh, creating because that's uh, a human quality which we always want to express. So we just need to find ways to do it. So maybe it's more uh, homebound, maybe it's more close to home, maybe it's open artisans. source. It's oh, definitely artisans. Definitely artisans. But for instance, you know, I'm surprised that there is not yet one couture house which has published one item open source so that we can all make a beautiful dress or skirt. You know, that would be make so much sense to make so many people happy with a small gesture. And I see that there is uh, also a very big difference between female designers and male designers. And I think female designers seem to be more confident in the way they create. They don't create out of uh, fear. They create out of joy. Whereas male designers often create out of some enormous pain, which something happened in their childhood. Or so. really? The creation for men is often a very painful process. That's a strong statement. I know, and that's, I also, like, really? okay. and that's also beautiful. I like. I just I, I, discovered I agree with this that, recently. Yeah. I'm writing a book on Isabel Marant, and she's, you know, she's Marant. She's funny. She's joyful. She, everything she does is out of joy. And I think that maybe the nature of females creating clothes is because we are so near to ourselves. And you see now Chanel is, is done by a woman, Dior is done by a woman. I think they know how to create products girls like, because I see these products everywhere, in the metro, everywhere. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's also a new paradigm. I mean, the old way of the, you've written extensively before about the whole kind of the egotistical designer or the single, only pushing for the catwalk designer mm. or the big star. That's a very that old-fashioned. Mm. You use that phrase, old-fashioned. Mm. Mm. On the brink of a new decade, that idea of putting one man on a pedestal and everyone else must serve him seems very obsolete, right? Yeah. Maybe the rise of womankind energy-wise could be part of the new yeah, solution. I think it's very helpful to create product which is uh, more targeted, I would say. And therefore also less, so you can, you know, you can, there's still place for others, you know. It's like a good regimen, it's not so many calories, you don't have to have it all. And so I think we will just rethink completely the way we retail, uh, the way we reach consumers, all that has to be invented. So it's, I see the coming period as extremely creative and fascinating. Most people are scared of what they're going to lose. I'm excited about what we're going to win. 
Maybe that's the reason why Irofumi Curino introduced us and the listeners of this podcast can also listen to the podcast with Irofumi Curino we recorded in Tokyo. It's Curino-san who told me, you've got to work with Lee Erdelcourt. She's <laughs> a genius. You've got to work with her. Otherwise, your whole work in textile is worth nothing. <laughs> And that's what we did. I we came did. to see you. That's what we did. I came to see you in New York. You were already organizing your New York Textile Month. And we decided to work together. Then when we started working together, we decided to focus our work on Mali. And you, you and your team, Brigitta, and our team, Aram Sidibe, we had an idea to drop fashion, to focus on, on interiors, to focus on art. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, we um, grasped the opportunity to do this work in uh, Mali. And uh, together with the team, and especially Birgitta de Vos has been Birgitta very important. She is a textile artist, and so she's been traveling there, and she's been working with the artisans. And uh, the idea is that we don't think we can design for artisans. We think that we should listen to the artisans and have them design. Uh, so, in fact, you, the only thing you need to do is to uh, take an inventory of what the history is, what is the Bogoran motifs, what is the character, what is the colors, the earth colors, the natural colors. May I interrupt you? For listeners who don't know what Bogoran is, could you tell us? It's um, a way of um, weaving small strips of cotton textiles, which are then painted and tinted and manufactured into bigger pieces. In Mali, in central Mali, where we work together, a lot of communities, of, especially of women, but also of men, keep this old, this ancient skill alive. They use the mud of the river Niger to oh, oxidate. The mud, the mud oh, right. of the river Niger. Because oh, we is say why, mud cloth. This is why it's called also mud cloth. And they, this mud oxidates the colors, the natural dyes they use for the colors, isn't it, Lee? Yeah, it's beautiful. Because you have, you know, this brown-black and you have these strange yellows and you have these uh, terracottas. And so we choose a very reduced gum of color. So we wanted it to be very um, specific and, again, not to do too much. And uh, Birgitta had this um, insight to look at one Bogoran at a time. And to see it as an artisan work, artwork um, in its own right. So, in fact, we are now producing and selling very well, like little breads, this one single bogolons. They have a bit of um, crafted wood on top and on bottom. So it becomes like little textile totems, which you can accumulate in your interior. We have sent a whole group of those to a, a luxury hotel, safari hotel in South Africa, Singita. So we're very proud that it's in such a first-class um, situation. Indeed. And uh, people are very happy to see this, the simplicity of this. So it's indeed innovation. <laughs> well, I'm hearing like it it's connection, it's culture, it's connection to nature, literally, because mud from the literally. river. Yes. And it's almost anti-consumerist because it's artwork in a way, or it's making storytelling into that connection between textile and art. 
Or is it craft? I don't know if you can use it's the word craft. art. I think I would, I'd rather be a good craftsman than a bad artist. But <laughs> And so the most fun thing is also the name of this uh, adventure, which is called A, 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 A. And it stands for Atelier d'Autodidact Anti-Algorithm. So it's really robustly against uh, artificially intelligent and such. And it's really celebrating the artisan as the master of his own destiny. And no longer us, you know, whiteies going out and putting people to work. It's really an, a reversal of roles. Yeah. I have to put there as well copyright thing, this incredible name, you're absolutely right, it's beautiful, was invented by our project leader in Mali, Haram Sidibe, Madame Haram Sidibe, yeah, who invented this, this incredible, this incredible <laughs> yeah. name for this group, which is, which is she amazing. She showed me photos right. of the, and she called them Atelier d'Autodidacte because we had not been able to go there because of the war. And so I said, oh my God, this is the best brand name. Ever. It is indeed. <laughs> Tell us, Lee, what you think the role of craft is in the fashion future with regards to tech. And Simone and I were talking about this actually for a fashion revolution mm. zine a few months ago. But when we look at the future, we think that it surely has to be shaped by digital change and tech. How do you think craft and tech can marry? How can these rich artisanal traditions actually work with or do they have to be separate from the sort of techie digital future? No, they already work together. My students in uh, Parsons, uh, in this hybrid course, they um, they use biotech and uh, high-tech, and then they make macrame, you see, out of it. So uh, Describe it in what way. Well, she makes yarns from um, seaweed, it's like spaghetti from seaweed, if you want. Then she tins it with the waste of uh, fruit. And then she forges it into a beautiful macrame. So it's super high-tech and super low at the same time. That makes and for, it. Uh, for this young generation, there is absolutely no frontier. No frontier. It's, they use... For instance, another student is giving shape to the shape of sound. So there is, you know, sound takes on different shapes. And so that is a three-dimensional form, which he then executes in very interesting felted woolens with a Swedish producer. And so this is to absorb sound. So you suddenly have a device which is like sound, able to absorb sound, you see? Yeah. That's how... You've talked about the future. Fantastic it, it is. I love how you put a futuristic lens on this stuff. You've talked about textiles as being the fabric or the structure even of the future. Yeah, it, it, it is going to be because we will use uh, knitting and weaving to actually build bridges and buildings and planes. This is in the second half of this century. But there is many, many scenarios already is working. That, have they figured out how to do that? What, carbon fibre or something? Yeah, with carbon fiber, with all sort of new... It can also be very old fiber because they can be also very resilient or you can coat the fiber or you can uh, have more massive uh, fiber bases. Bridges are your favorite subject? 
Yes, they are indeed. Is that so? That's, yeah. <laughs> Every that's, podcast he just talks about bridges. Go bridges, on, that's, that's what we try to build in between different cultures, different people also. Ah, that's see. what I was <laughs> I saying before, the regeneration of the social capital. It's about building bridges in order to allow people to go towards each other and to reestablish trust um, in society. But I want to tell you something once in a blue moon, not about a bridge, well, but about the dream, a dream that I share with Lee. We okay. always speak about this when we meet. You have a dream about creating a department store, an exhibition center, where you have the life of the artisans from all over the world, the best of what they produce, of what they make, along with food, along with furniture, a place where people can stay. So imagine a department store where you enter, and it has all the same categories, like cutlery and yeah. bedding and tabletop. Children's wear. And children's wear. Food. And carpets. And yeah. But everything is artisan-driven. I see it. You can, it's I amazing. I can see it, you know? yeah. It's like such a joy. I wonder why no one thought of it. Well, you yeah. did. I thought about it when I did a speech in the Santa Fe market two years ago, where I was so impressed by this uh, international presence of all the artisans, the quality of things, the integrity of indigenous people, the beautiful way they also share between different countries and continents. And they even dance together and they have a parade. It's like a world the way it should be, in a way. It's um, a moment of joy. Yes. Santa Fe is a moment of joy, really. Could craft be the antidote to our disconnection and our uncertain world? Is there that something... Is, that is certain, yeah. And also craft is important to give us tactility. Because we are, I was doing that in the air, yeah, wasn't I? I want to so, touch it. Uh, we're so surrounded with screens that our fingers need to touch. So everybody is looking for surfaces. That's a big, big thing. Can we talk about your lace? Uh, the My lace. lace. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a heavy lace. <laughs> it's like a cute pure. Yeah, it is. Instead of a bridge, you could see a department store with a beautiful web platform to sell all these things together. Oh, it might be virtual, but then mm. we can't touch it. No, they need, no, to, they it, need to you be need one the physical flexion. dimension. Mm. You need the physical dimension, you need to touch early. But it could be the solution for um, suffering department store. It's very important also because it would involve the consumer in the process. And my belief is that we are slowly entering the age of amateur, where the amateur is going to be more important than anybody else. And where, in a way, everybody's involved in part of the creative process and uh, wanting to be educated in the creative process and wanting to learn. So all these things come together almost as one. So the bad news and the good news somehow coagulate in the middle, creating something very interesting and positive. And so I already know, I can already see that this change is coming and that it's going to be super amazing and that it will be very joyful, and it will be uh, making money, it will be making less waste. I was going to ask you how it goes down, both of you, but Lee in particular, coming out with these provocative visions of the future that shake people up, that say the system is changing, it's broken, we need something else in its place, you know, anti-fashion, fashion is dead, all this stuff. I didn't say that. I said that the industries of fashion, the institutions of fashion are dying. Fashion will never die. Will never die. 
Believe it's me. It's part of the human being. It's part of our being humans, our building and expressing our identity. It's part of that. Cannot live without that. When you published your manifesto, you did say that you found it difficult because you love fashion and you knew that you were shaking its foundations by talking about the parts of the system that didn't work, though. It was painful to make this analysis and to actually see while writing that it's even worse than I was thinking. Yeah, it was not happy to make the tour with that talk. But now I'm very happy I did it because now I get such amazing feedback about it because more people come to that same conclusion after a few years. So now it's becoming a movement. But, you know, I have a few times a week very young, beautiful boys and girls, you know, arresting me in the street saying, I don't do this normally, but I'm so impressed with the anti-fashion, with everything you do, and I agree so much, and I want to be in touch. And So it's like wildfire. It goes around this world in like wildfire, you know. It's unstoppable. That's what I feel. Because people are yearning for a different <gasps> way. All and these young kids, you know, what are they going to do without a future? So for them, it's even a necessity. Engage. And people want to engage for that. What Greta brought to the surface of the world is that the youngest generations want to engage and want to engage for a different world. I'm full of hope. And Julie? Yeah, I'm hopeful. I think that it's a huge mess. I'm not hopeful when I look at um, the American administration and some of the European ones as well. I'm very hopeful when I see the sardine movement in Italy. Oh, that's beautiful. So thing. cute. Tell us what it is. The sardine movement in Italy, as far as I understand, is silent middle majority of people who are fed up with extreme right-wing promotions. And so they go into the street massively. They're very well behaving. So that's why they're like school of sardines. Mm. There's not really a leader, like in the School of Sardines, and they are just putting a new form of very elegant pressure to give a counterbalance in numbers, and it's getting very, very vital and important. At the same time, there is four mayors in four Eastern European countries which are completely fed up with the politics of uh, extreme right-wing, and white supremacy and so, and so they are now putting their four cities together to make a sort of inter-country coordinated government. So I strongly believe in the mayor power in the future of uh, whatever we call it. It's no longer democracy. You've got five women power sharing in Finland, led by Sanna Marin. Sanna. Three of them are under the age of 35. Women. So. Yeah. So a future could be around sharing. You talked about open source, certainly textiles. And connection. about building identities in a different way. Healthier food. Yeah, food and mm. identities as a sharing device, something to be shared, something to communicate and not to build walls. If we learn to build identities around that, we have a different future at hand. And fashion can help in that. And no more greed. That's the big problem, right? To get people away from greed, to understand that that is not necessarily a natural element in society. Do you think greed's constructed? I think. I think greed is um, imposed upon us. 
You know, I had the chance to be born in 50 in nothingness after the war, which is amazing because then you become creative because you don't have anything. So I know what it is to live without any greed and how happy that can be also. Contentment is maybe a new word and especially innovating. So stop and don't do something for a while. Slow down. Yeah, and also maybe get rid of all the shit. Maybe we need to just, you know, <laughs> first sell all the unsolds and rekindle them, restitch them, reanimate them, remake them work and, you know, make them fun and irreverent and creative. I like your vision for the future, Lee Edelgott. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's join in. We're out of time. Thanks, Lee. You're welcome. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Just don't shout because I feel like it's quite ah, okay. noisy. Okay, just the rest. Yeah, yeah, go on. I have the syndrome of the... Will you have silent or the, shouting? <laughs> yeah, no, I have the syndrome of the presenter in, in an old Italian ballroom. Uh, ah. where I, <laughs> I love it. Because I used to be a waiter when I was in university. And the waiter, I used to work in a restaurant, which after dinner was transformed into a ballroom. So... It was fun. So did you say, and now it's time for the dancing? And now, adesso si balla. <laughs> and everybody, boom, boom. <laughs> Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, We build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. Mm-hmm.